Hello and welcome to Lang Time Chat. It is episode 11 and this time I'm prepared for that because last time we were so lost on what number it was that it became engraved in my mind. So now I know we're on episode 11, which is very exciting because we are coming close to episode 12, which of course marks a year. So we're only one month away from a full year of podcasting. How is that possible when we didn't even start this until February? We, oh, our because... first podcast was March 1st. This will be aired on January 1st. February and 1st then... will be, yeah. Yes, I got it now. I'm, I'm happy to introduce you to the calendar. You're welcome, David. I'm not great <laughs> at it. I'm not great at it. I'm not going to lie. Calendars has never been my strong suit. Uh, this is why you need me. Throws <laughs> you know, when, um, when, you know, the calendar that, and by the way, none of your students found um in in the uh, D D class that we did right oh, right yeah yeah nobody found the the hidden the hidden links i i created a calendar for my D D world which is uh which is perfect in other words it has um there are there are there two moons no there's only one moon i didn't i didn't mess around with two moons because i knew i knew about the book um yes. so yeah uh so one moon but every single month has 35 days. Okay. Uh, and every single week has five days or was it? No, I think it's five days. Yeah. Every single week has five days. And then there's a leftover month at the end month, right? That just has okay. however many leftover days there are. And it's How is just that a, perfect? Uh, no, it's perfect in that there's just one small month that has between one and five days, depending on, you know, leap years and the lunar cycles. Right. But why not just extend the final month and just say this last month has 36 to 41 days? Because that extra very small month is just a celebration week. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's really why you think it's perfect, but it's really not so perfect <laughs> if you're in a year where it's like, oh, it's a one day week. Yay. Yeah. I mean, back to, back to Monday or what was it called? <laughs> Belche, I think, is the first is the word for Monday in that one. <laughs> sure. Nice. Okay, so okay. I now know what your definition of a perfect year is. Yes. I'm glad we have that covered. I would like to tell our listeners that today is a special episode because Ooh. not only is it number eleven, which is always fun, right? Good number. Um, I prefer odd numbers, by the way, in case you're wondering. <laughs> it's one of those preferences. Um, and today, David is taking charge. And oh, he's just nodding right. like, oh, wait, that means I have to talk. <laughs> I was... So it's going to be a very quiet episode <laughs> as I stare at him waiting to tell me what we're talking about. I want to tell you what I was thinking in my mind. <laughs> I'll wait till you're done drinking. <laughs> okay, because... now I want to know. Water because... is down on the table. Because when you said that, I was just in my mind, I was like, ooh. And then was waiting back to watch David take over. Okay, like, this, this is fun. This is also the episode where we learn that David is really two people. <laughs> and one of them knows that they are doing something today. The other one is like, oh, <laughs> can't wait. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. So 
uh, for today's topic, I, this was one. This was kind of a this was kind of a, a meteor one that I wanted to dig into. Uh, but it seems like an obvious one, so obvious that I had to go back to each of our podcasts to make sure that we hadn't discussed this already, mm-hmm. because I wouldn't put it past me to forget about it and then be right. really, really embarrassed when I said the to topic. Just repeat. And you just said like we did that three months ago in episode four (laughs) yep so uh what i wanted to uh talk about was uh conlanging pedagogy Uh, oh yeah i mean it's like it's right there you know and so i just thought it would be cool to like really dig into it um and and of course we have we have our own personal history with it and then i have uh my recent history with this so uh, a little bit of background. I was uh, so you totally froze, David. Just a second, Marion. Do you remember Sherry Wells Jensen? So you totally froze. I did. Um, your yep. your video is one hundred percent frozen, and I missed a big chunk of what you said. Okay. Yeah. Now you're moving again. You're moving again. I did hear the words speculative grammarian though. And Sherry Wells Jensen, like that's literally all I heard. (laughs) Okay. I mean, of course it was going to happen right then. We've, we've had remarkable luck with the podcasts, I think, given, you know, internet and technology, but of course it had to cut out right then. So going back to our speculative grammarian days many, many, yes. many moons ago. Uh, do you know Sherry Wells Jensen? No, no. However, am I aware of the name? Do I know the name? Yes. Okay. So Sherry Wells Jensen is a is a conlanger and also a professor of uh, linguistics. Well, linguistics, she's a professor of English because they don't have a linguistics department at Bowling Green State University, the one in Ohio, not the Bowling Mm -hmm. Green in Kentucky, the one I've been to. Um, And uh, the first place I knew about her was she contributed an article to Speculative Grammarian as um, a braille encoding of Klingon uh, because uh, she's also blind uh, and been blind for many, many years and a ukulele player. Um, Anyway, so uh, uh, we got to know each other with SpecGram she was one of the, she was the alternate uh, when we did the Dothraki competition, which- That's right, right. Yeah, which I don't even understand why there was an alternate. She should have just been called a finalist, but they called her an alternate for some reason. And then she dropped out because uh, while she was excited about the prospect of you know professional conlanging, she found uh, the subject matter of A Song of Ice and Fire to be too violent and objectionable. And honestly, she wasn't wrong. Um, right. But um, but she did amazing work. She also was a finalist for the uh, next job that we ran for Noah, um, the movie Noah, right? With what Russell Crowe. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so uh, so we've known each other for a bit, and she was going to be participating in a panel at the LAX Marriott, you know, right nearby with a group called METI, M-E-T-I. And that stands for Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence, unlike SETI, which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. 
Um, and uh, apparently this group, METI, they like meet every so often and talk about what it might be like to message aliens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, well, that's interesting. And she invited me to give a talk at their symposium. Um, and I was like, well, okay, I'll do something with this. Um, totally random backstory for extra credit when I took uh, a, what was it, an astronomy course at Berkeley to fulfill a breath requirement. Um, for extra credit, we could go to a meeting that was going to be held at Berkeley, a one-day symposium called the uh, Stro- Astronomical Society of the Pacific. And so I thought, ah, whatever. And I get there, and the Astronomical Society of the Pacific is nothing but uh, talking about searching for aliens. So, like, I mean, it doesn't sound like it, but I, I sat through, right. like, yeah, I, I sat through, like, six or seven scholarly talks on the search for aliens. Um, nice. And I know a lot more than I did before. Uh, let's see. So this, <laughs> by the way, I like that. That's your summary. I know yeah. a lot more. <laughs> so this is actually a, a a date is coming up in 2002. Not you know right away, but in seven years. In 2002, uh, they said that um, they have a specific way of searching for aliens that they're using. I think it was a uh, radio telescope or something like that. And they said. Um, in 25 years, we will either have discovered, you know, alien life in the galaxy or discovered that there's none or, uh, or we will have reached the limits of this technology. So okay. 2027. Oh, that's coming up really fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, haven't heard anything yet, but we found water on, the, on Mars, didn't we? I think so. That's something. So that um, is something. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway. Matt Damon was able to grow poo potatoes somehow. Yeah, amazing. Man, that movie was tense. I didn't expect it to be tense. I expected it to be, you know, funny and really kind of like cool, but it gets really intense at the end. Yes, Ooh. it does. Yes. Ah, good stuff. Anyway, so, um, all right. So I gave this talk, uh, by the way, um, which was fine, which was basically saying, God, there was one of the talks was co authored by Noam Chomsky. And and when Wait, I at this at this SETI meeting? Yes, yes. Or Medi, not Medi. Medi, yeah. Medi. I was actually slightly terrified that he was going to be there because I was like, what if he tries to talk to me? How do I restrain the hatred in my voice? But uh, you got you got to never mind. I won't. He, I he deserves go. some respect for what what he did for he the did. field. He he moved the field forward a hundred years and then set it back a hundred years. He deserves credit for that. Uh, <laughs> but he gave he gave more visionaries the leeway to do what they did based on the moving forward part. He he sure did, and he he also inspired a lot of graduate students to do a lot of good work after they found flaws in his work. His work and they and he banished them to lesser universities as he's done again and again and again. And you know what? That may be a better move for them. Sometimes a lesser university is a more welcome home. It certainly was. George Lakoff, David Perlmutter. Ah. Anyway, um, so okay, so you can you can feel how you want. I was just trying to be respectful. <laughs> no, Go you're, on. You're right. That's honestly that's always the route to take. It's it's rarely the route I take. The route I take is I usually open my stupid mouth and then regret it later, and then <laughs> you know. And then people hate me for it. And that's uh, that's kind of the way it is. Anyway, 
and then I just roll with it. Um, yeah, I lead a strange existence. Anyway, okay, so here's the point. So we're talking about Conlang pedagogy. At this, uh, after we were done with the many meeting, we went and had like lunch afterwards uh, and Sherry was there and uh, a couple of other people were there, uh, including uh, Jeff Punsky was there. And so as we were talking, he was saying, oh, by the way, you know, we're doing this, um, we're doing this book on Conlang pedagogy. And it's just immediately my old little, <clears throat> my old burning hatred went from like zero to a thousand. Cause I thought, how dare you? How dare you? My meeting for the first time, write a book on Conlang pedagogy. And A, I haven't heard of it. And B, nobody has told me about it until now due to this chance meeting. Oh, because it made me so mad. Because of course, anytime something is happening with conlinging, I feel like the conlinging community should be a part of it. And I always define the conlinging community via episode two, as you'll remember, as the original group, even though it's much bigger than that now. So I- You're, you're doing great with this, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> so I, um, Anyway, so I was talking to him and um, and and then I was basically interrogating him. I was like, okay, uh, so who's contributing to this? Because uh, Sherry Wells Jensen was contributing, which is good. Um, but uh, I was like, who's contributing to this? Like, do you have, and I started listing like the, the first three names that come to my head, which are always Matt Pearson, Doug Ball and Jesse Sands. Like, are these people contributing? Like, uh, well, yeah, yeah, we do have Matt, but no, I didn't know about Doug Ball and Jesse. I'm like, well, of course you didn't because you're not keyed in to the community. Ugh. Anyway, so, um, and then, uh, so I, anyway, I basically invited myself to contribute to this thing um, mm -hmm. and was then invited to contribute, um, you know, because I invited myself. Um, <laughs> And so, <laughs> and so I ended up writing. I ended up writing a chapter for this book that I thought was pretty good. Um, but um, this was just the introduction. It's this is quite the introduction. Like I'm waiting to see where we end up. Um, I think we're we're up to the point where you're you're fully on topic on yeah. calling pedagogy. So so that's good. Yeah, so like I, I contributed a chapter to this book. It came out recently. It's been on my mind. Um, I did manage to get a couple of other people to contribute, but they never contacted you at all. No. Pisses me straight off. And I feel fine saying that here because this is our own Patreon podcast, which eventually other people will be able to see, but they're not gonna. So Jeff Pumsky's not looking at this. And he and he's a good guy. He invited me to the, the convention they have over here. He introduced me to a cool board game. That was it's fine. But God, that pisses me straight off. Like Well, I, I feel like this may later. You you talk big now, but in like eight months when this is released to to everyone and he totally finds out he's mentioned, I don't know, 28 times in the span of like 15 minutes, um, he's going to listen. And you may be like, why did I open my mouth? Anyway, mm -hmm. just, just saying, I want you to mark this moment. <laughs> okay. 
December 14th. Good. Got it. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like, and you know, it's not even because of the status I have now in the Conlink community. I always feel like if I make a recommendation, then whoever gets it must take it seriously because I made it. It was my recommendation. How mm -hmm. dare you not take it into consideration, A, and then B, not act on it. Oh. Anyway. Uh, sad existence. It is. All right. So that is that. Is that. Anyway. So uh, anyway, but of course, the entire reason that that we actually like are here is because of your class. Yes. Uh, which is something that I find truly incredible. Um, there have been a number of Conlang classes, but yours has been in existence since, since when, what was the first year? 2011. 2011. So, so this, this is, will mark the decade going so in yeah, spring so you, 2021. Spring 2021 will be 10 years that you've been teaching this class. And what makes it more remarkable, uh, aside from its quality, uh, which sets it apart from others is is where you've done it. I mean, especially at the beginning, you didn't even have a linguistics department, right? Right. It, right. it was it was an English department, and you sold this to them. You said not only with this tiny little linguistics program that we have, not only should we be teaching these other courses, but let me teach this. And I know that you have to think about it. This is 2011. 2011. Mm -hmm. I still feel like you have to say 2011. You can't say 2011. Um, spring semester? Yes. Yes. So this is before Game of Thrones debuted. It, yes, because if I, if I remember correctly, I may have my years wrong. It was after Avatar. So Navi was known. Um, and so it was it was definitely like that was in the the sort of public awareness though because that movie actually yep. kind of had a long lasting yes it effect did. it when did it when did game of thrones debut so the the timeline works like this avatar came out in december of 2009 okay. um and so there was like uh, for me personally because i got uh i got the job for game of thrones in october there was like two months where I was crazy excited. I was like, wow, I'm going to be the next Mark Okren. And then Avatar came out. And I was like, well, there goes that. Because they absolutely, completely uh, stole our thunder. And it became like the big thing for Con Langy. And right. then in April of 2010, mm -hmm. uh, HBO agreed to let us run this press release saying that, you know, I'd been hired to create the Dothraki language, which caused a minor stir but not really anything right. very big uh, okay. and then uh we finished filming on that show on that first season somewhere in 2010 and okay. the show would have debuted in may i believe of 2011. okay because i remember so here is how my timeline works i knew that avatar had come out well, at least I was fairly certain. Otherwise, my memory is just all miscombobbled and that happens sometimes. Um, but Avatar had come out and my students in my intro to linguistics class in the spring semester after it came out, kept telling me about it. They're like, you have to see it, you have to see it. Um, and after I introduced a morphology exercise where students like create their own little 
basically they're just creating a nonce language just enough to create like a data set for someone else to figure out what's going on in the language pattern to see if they understood <clears throat> the differences of of all the concepts they were supposed to remember. So like, I would actually assign them like, oh, you're gonna have to use a fixation to do this. You're gonna have to use compounding to do this. And so like, they had to figure out how to like, just create, again, just all fake, all very regular, but a data set for other people to identify. Um, and so, which was really fun by the way. But when I gave that exercise to my students, I had a student come up to me and they were like, okay, if you haven't seen Avatar yet, you have to, because like, you just made us do this and there's this language. So I didn't see it until later in that semester. And when I saw it, that's when the idea actually came to me that wait, like if this is such a big deal and everybody's talking about Navi and my students really enjoyed this, you know, create your own data set thing, what would happen if I did like an entire semester and they had to do the whole language? Um, and so I started pulling together ideas. I had to sell it by the end of that semester, because in fall, like the way that academic scheduling works, you have to submit usually by September what you're gonna be teaching in the spring. So like I had to have everything ready to go and argued before I could get it on the schedule in fall of 2010 or 2010 as you would prefer to call it. Um, and so like all of that happened really relatively quickly. And so um, that, was, that was sort of the timeline that led up to being able to offer it the first time. Okay, so <clears throat> let me dig into that a little bit. Actually, um, what uh, what gave you the idea to do uh, to do the problem set? That was actually a prompt that at one point I don't know if it's still a prompt in it, but in the language files, um, and I was using the language files as the course book, and there was yeah. a prompt in the exercises for the morphology set. And I don't know if it's only in the teacher's edition. I don't know if it's still there, but it was just like this offhand paragraph, like, oh, if you want to see if students really understand, have them create their own data set. Um, and I can't remember what the exact prompt was. I can't even tell you. If I were in my campus office, I could try to find yeah. the old edition I was using that semester and try to tell you more um but that's all I remember was that there was this prompt and I'm like oh my gosh I'm gonna run with this and like so I made that into an entire assignment for my students um and it turned into like an in-class day because they exchanged the data sets in class and actually worked them together in groups and and gave feedback um especially where like oh you said this morpheme does this thing which I know your favorite word morpheme um but it's like you say it does this thing but in the translation it doesn't quite match when you do you know go from here to here um so it was really a way to show that they not only understood the concepts but also understood like the meaning differences that should be applied if you're saying you know this this little piece does this certain job can you actually show that it does that job in the data set gosh even that an assignment is better than the stuff I usually did. Dang, really good at facilitating group work, by the way, um, which is something I've been very, very bad at historically. Just teaching, like even in um, English, like freshman composition, it really felt tacked on. And I think that comes from my deep hatred of doing group work. <laughs> uh, but the point though, is that when yeah. you when you do facilitate group work, it's never for a grade. And I think that's your deep hatred. Because if it's not for a grade and the whole goal is just for you guys to go back and forth and for you to bring your own work and them to bring their own work and to like, you know, work together and figure things out from there, I think it gets a lot better. Um, I never, 
okay, take that back. I have in the past just because I really didn't want to grade that many papers. I have done group for that reason. <laughs> but um, for my linguistics classes, I've really shied away from ever having any graded group work. Um, and if I ever did, it was very clear where it was like, listen, you're going to do this presentation together, but like you're going to submit to me what you did and you get graded only on your part. Like I don't, I don't grade the whole group together because of that, because you and I, I know at some point have talked, maybe not on the podcast, so we'll tell everybody out there listening, mm -hmm. neither David nor I ever liked group work in school because we both are yep. a bit of control freaks maybe, um, but also like at some point the other students are like, oh, you're gonna do the work, so here you go. And then yep. everybody gets your grade that you worked really hard for. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Very frustrating. But anyway, that's that's something you're good to keep in mind if I if I go back to teaching one day, which I assume I will. It, it'll probably Obviously. just happen. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, I'm I'm waiting for a university to just reach out to you and say, you know, here's the professor emeritus position kind of thing. Finally, like here's here's just like a fake ph a fake honorary PhD and a fake mm -hmm. honorary title. Just do stuff. They let me do that. <sighs> someday anyway um okay so that's now um let me ask a, a kind of a similar question in a separate way uh so you've been a conlanger though this entire time yes um had um okay i'm sorry so this is uh 2010 your teaching when did you start at sfa in 2009 fall of 2009 okay so it really hadn't been that long yeah so I was brand wow. new. And by the way, that yeah. semester, there was not yet a linguistics program. I am that person who was hired and then same semester said, hey, I'm going to create a minor. And they went with it. Like, I, I can't even tell you how crazy that is because the number of people I know who've been hired and like three, four or five years later are still fighting like hell to get a linguistics minor program certificate, anything. Um, and Literally, I walked in the door and within a month of meeting everybody, laid down my plan and was like, here we go. Here's what we need to do, which, by the way, requires creating like five new courses. <laughs> so, that is incredible. Yeah. Like, I didn't know that. I, I, I'm oh. sorry. I, I thought that the linguistics program was there. I thought that's why you were hired. That's incredible. I was, I was hired to teach the four classes they had on the books um and the only reason they were on the books was because they fulfilled degree requirements for other programs yeah. and so it was basically they had an intro class they had structures of english um they had a topics in linguistics which they're like that hasn't been taught in so long we don't even know what to do with it and history of the english language and so those were the four classes i was given to start and um at the very beginning, they had even, they basically said really the only two classes that had been offered in years were structures of English and history of English language. And so that's what I actually started teaching. Like that's all they gave me at first. Um, and so from there, I was like, this is unacceptable. We're, <laughs> we're gonna make this bigger. So I, I yeah, within that first semester, um, was able to argue for and get approved all the way through the state level, um, course modifications, brand new courses on the books, um, and a linguistics minor. Yeah. And at that point, I was all the right. only linguist. So they literally let me do this as the only linguist in the department at that point. That is unbelievable. That is just truly extraordinary. 
my goodness. Jeez. I need to sit with that for a second. Hold on a sec. Let me see my notes here just so I can remember what even the hell I'm doing. Um, uh, wow. Okay. Okay. Man, how do I even get back? I'm still sitting with that. That's really, really, really incredible. Amazing. I, okay. I will say I was very, very lucky to have um, a department who supported the vision because gotcha. honestly, they, they didn't have to because they didn't know me. I'd literally just been hired. Um, and it passed through the department. So that required department vote, it required college vote, university yep. level, all the way through state board. Um, and that is sort of a unique thing to have happen, I will say. Like, so anybody out there who's no. listening thinking, oh, I'm gonna be a professor and I'm gonna go start a program. It usually doesn't happen that way. <laughs> no, it, it truly is. And, and the same thing, with, same thing with my career, a lot of the things that have happened have required, mm -hmm. right? The, the say so, of people who don't know us, probably don't care about us, and probably don't even fully understand what it is that we're trying to do. Right. And I yet, actually, yeah. Go on. It's just, and yet, and miraculously, they just sign off on it, mm -hmm. where so many times they wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. And I, it was still a problem within I had probably been teaching there for, you know, five, six years, and I would still have colleagues come up to me and ask me, what do you do in that class again? Because, you know, they were trying to advise a student and they're like, I don't really know what you teach. And in one of the classes, you know, I had somebody ask me, is that the class where you teach them where to put commas? And I'm like, oh, that's not even, no. <laughs> like, like that was still the perception was that like we teach if you teach grammar, that must mean you're teaching them how to, you know, use commas and semicolons and things like that. Yep. And it's like, that was still yep. a perception even after I had been there for quite a while. So um, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, they had to sign off on something. They literally had no idea other than their vague memories of like this one grad class they took where they had to diagram sentences. Um, <laughs> and like, that's really the only memory most of them had of linguistics. Incredible. So man. <clears throat> okay, so then 2011 comes, and you're designing your first Conlin course. And so, uh, of course, the thing that jumped to my mind was, were you familiar with any others at that time? With any other Conlingers or Conlin courses? Conlin courses. No, I legit at that <clears throat> point was like, I'm recreating the world. Wow. <laughs> I had, so yeah, no, I had no idea. I actually, and so this is my naivete. Um, I did not know the word conling at that point. And so that's why the class was originally offered as invented languages, because what do you call these things? Um, and it wasn't until, and it was already on the books that it was gonna be taught in the spring. And so I started getting more in depth in the research and trying to pull in actual resources. Cause before that I had an idea of, you know, here's my conlang process. So it's going to, you know, the course is gonna follow that same process and these kinds of assignments, this kind of output. Um, so like I had that all laid out, but I wanted to be able to give students resources, obviously. Um, and there wasn't really a book at that time that I could really necessarily use and sink my teeth into as a course book. So I created instead a very extensive course pack um, where I like wrote out all the information I wanted them to have. Um, and as I was doing that, I wanted to have resources. So I started looking up more information to try to pull in, you know, more examples. Cause I was really only 
familiar with a handful of um, conlangs at that point. And they were all ones that were like really well known. So I wanted to have more examples. So I started researching and that's when I realized like, oh, there's this other word out there. And that seems to be the word people prefer when they actually do it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's when I learned the word conlang um, or even the term constructed language at that point. Um, so that doing the research for that course is actually how I became more aware of a bigger world but I still wasn't aware of the actual community of conlingers quite yet. And mind you, at this point, I had been actively conlinging for, I mean, at this point, really actively conlinging, because I don't really start it until 2008 as my like active start date. And so mm -hmm. like I had been doing it for three years, um, completely unaware that there were resources out there that could have helped me. Yeah, I mean, uh... <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I suppose it's a little bit more surprising given then you were really, really, really into the internet era, but. <laughs> but we've had this discussion before yeah, where I if know. you're not used to using the internet, it doesn't occur to you to use the internet, even when it's available. So that's, that's one of those things that happened. Yep. So, all right. Um, man, this, this is really incredible. All right. So, um, okay. Your, your first course, by the way, uh, how did it go? It went really, really, really well. Um, it barely made, so I needed 10 students to make. And um, I think we ended up with 12 and one of the students dropped at some point. And so we finished the class with 11, um, but it was a lot of good energy. Uh, it was actually, it ended up being like all female students. And so yeah. that created this great energy in the classroom. Um, it's also one of the reasons why the semester went great. And part of it was honestly, because it was just like this really great energy of all of them working together. Um, it went so well that we created a class t-shirt and like they actually, and I couldn't, I didn't have the department funds or anything to actually support the purchase of that. So they each had to pay for their own t-shirt. Um, but they did it because they were like, we want a class t-shirt. So like they pulled it together, designed it. We, I put it into a program and, you know, ordered it from a local place and we had a class t-shirt by the end of the semester. And it's like, you don't really get that kind of community very often, um, but they, it, it was just wonderful. So wonderful that quite frankly, at the end of it, I was like, I'm never teaching that class again because I don't want to ruin that memory. <laughs> <laughs> and so I almost never taught it again just because that first offering was, was just the best. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, it, also, it also makes me feel better about my first class since um, they were hoping I would get, you know, hundreds of students and I got like 19. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's so, I think it's, it's really hard to sell out of the blue, like there has to be some sort of standing. And the biggest thing you need is students telling other students that they should take that class. That's without that, my experience in academia is you're not going to get a big student draw toward any class unless other students are saying, oh my gosh, you need to take that class. And that's the only way to do it. Like advertising doesn't work. They don't care about advertising. Telling all the advisors doesn't work because they don't you know, they hear what their advisors say, but you know, they do what they're gonna do. Um, like none of that works. The only thing that really works is when you have that history of offering it um, and students tell others. 
that's literally the only thing. By the way, in case you're wondering, for spring semester, two sections of Invented made. So both of them yeah. are now are now going to run. Right. Um, and uh, I, I'm really tempted to talk to you about that, of course, because I, I want to help out right. with that. But, but no, that, that's not for the podcast. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be when we're not <laughs> recording a podcast. Right, 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 right. Okay, okay, okay. So um, anyway, um, I sorry, I'm kind of got it, getting off track from what I was planning to do, but I'm, I'm just still more interested in this. So, uh, so 2013, uh, the second time you teach the course, right? Yes. By the way, did was it your decision to teach every two years as opposed to every year? Yes, because it was hard to get students to sign up for the course. And mm. I didn't want to overwhelm and have it offered so frequently that I couldn't get enough students the following year. Because my goal was to never say it was going to be offered and then not offer it because you know, that doesn't turn out so well with trying to get right. students to take it in the future because then it's of the course. class that, oh, it doesn't make. Um, and so really there's like this sort of balancing situation where in general, we see our students in a two-year rotation. And so the two-year in-between gap allowed us to like build up the course with all our current students to say, take it this semester. Um, so like I start telling students about it two years out um, to try to help build that. But even with that, the second time I offered it, um, I want to say that was the year I had maybe 14 students sign up for it. 2013. I know by 2015, I finally was getting like, I didn't have to worry about it. It just made. But like 2013, we were still fighting for it. Wow. And and how and and how, sorry, how did that uh, the second class go? Like that was that was the year, of course, of mm -hmm. of LCC five, right. And so one thing I have to stop and think. No, that was the year that that happened. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> 2013 went well. There was another year where there was some drama, but 2013, <laughs> that was a good year. Um, no, that one went really well. Um, that was one where I may have accidentally pissed off the conline community um, because I set them up with clients to create a language for somebody else. Um, what gave you that idea? I, what's that? What gave you that idea? Um, I was doing a faculty learning community about service learning and how working with clients outside the university is supposed to be really good for students. And I'm like, hey, I'm doing this invented languages course. I could set them up because the biggest problem that I encountered in 2011 was students coming to the table saying, I'm not creative enough to create my own world. And like, they were scared to do it. So I'm like, listen, I'm gonna take that away from you. Someone else is going to tell you what to create a language for. Someone else is going to tell you all the things that they want out of the language, and then you're just going to do it. Um, and so that was my entire idea. Now, mind you, and I feel like this is a very big mind you, the clients ended up, because it's not like I, I know people who are publishing stuff, so they really ended up being friends or friends of friends who are like, oh yeah, I have this vague idea that maybe someday I could chase down. And so like, and some of them had no idea that they ever intend on chasing down. It was just like, oh, here, here's a, a thing that they can build a language for, even though it's just me making stuff up right now. 
Um, for instance, my sister was one of the clients. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, set people up with somebody outside the university to work with. Um, but yeah, I guess that was not a good move. It wasn't, by the way, I still didn't really know the LCS existed. The Language Creation Society existed until I was working on the 2013 course. So that's the first terrible. time I became yeah. aware. They're terrible at advertising. Nobody knows they exist. I, I, I found them randomly online. So yes, that was, but the class itself, by the way, went very well. Cool. So by the way, you had separately told me about that, uh, the, the faculty of, uh, learning community thing that you were doing, never put two and two together, but it's like, it seems obvious and totally organic that that is how you came up with that idea. And it was a really good and really solid idea. And anybody who told you that that was a bad idea was probably, you know, just an asshole who had no right to say anything about your pedagogical process. I don't know why anybody would. Well, thank you. <laughs> Apology accepted, David. <laughs> yes. All right. Happily given. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it's it's a very difficult thing to evaluate new information, right? Mm -hmm. Without having without having the the, the proper background, um, and I feel like that's also true. Uh, because we've talked separately about music. It's also true about music. There's a lot of music where I've heard it for the first time and immediately rejected it. I didn't like it, didn't sound like anything that I could wrap my ears around. But then when I listened to the context of where that music was coming from and listened to other artists and listened to this and this and that, suddenly I could place it and uh -huh. really appreciate it. Like, uh, I know that that happened to me with, uh, what's it? um with punk music which was a very very hard sell for me right uh, very hard sell for me um i just heard it, it sounded like noise it sounded unprofessional and like i'm somebody who is coming from like the head of like 80s arena rock which is like the most over-the-top professionally produced music that there is and so it's like, this sounded so stripped down. And so like, I mean, they, they weren't even singing well. I was like, how do you listen to this? And then it's like, you know, you listen more, you get the background, you get the energy. And suddenly it's like, okay, I understand how you're supposed to listen to this now. So like my background when, when you contacted the LCS was first, you know, of course I started as a language creator thinking I was the first one to ever do it for fun and then reluctantly found others and assumed I was better than all of them. Uh, eventually learned that I was not better than any of them and started to learn how to be a better conlanger. But, but yeah, something that truly, uh, truly shocked and, and disappointed me was how many conlangers talked about how secretive they had to be about creating languages. Um, how, how their friends and family, anytime they opened up to them, rejected them. Uh, I forget if I ever told you this, but Doug Ball, when he was a Stanford, uh, when he was a, a graduate student at Stanford, um, there was a, a mother who contacted him randomly because I don't know, maybe he gave a talk or something from the area. She heard that he had was cre created languages. Um, and she said uh, her daughter, who was like, I don't know, 11 or 12, 
-hmm. had been doing that and was wondering if he would meet with her. Um, and, and he did, like he, he went to their home and she showed him what she was doing. He gave her some encouragement, some tips. Uh, and it became very clear to Doug that what happened was this, this mother was just honestly looked at what her daughter was doing and didn't, and was probably wondering if she should take her to a psychologist. Oh, like, wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's like, after meeting with Doug, I mean, Doug is a, a bizarre fellow, but nevertheless, he was a PhD candidate, you know, at Stanford University who'd been doing this. Mm -hmm. um, just kind of seeing her interact with him and seeing the questions that he asked and seeing that, you know, he was somebody with his life together, it made her feel better. Like that's what her mother needed. Just like, wow. okay, there's nothing wrong with her. She's, she's okay, she can do this. And, but like, literally that's what that was. And, wow. and that's the type of thing that that happened. And that's a lot. That's the type of thing that a lot of conlangers were sharing on the list. Mm -hmm. Older conlangers, people that right. at that at their time were, were in their like 50s and 60s uh, and talking about how still they don't share their work with anybody on the list. Um, and, and I really took that to heart because of how opposite my experience was, where, you know, mm -hmm. I started and assumed everything I was doing was magnificent and everybody should love me. Um, and so, like, you know, as we went on and did the, the you know, LCC one and then founded the LCS, uh, I just, I carried that with me uh, for so long. I really, really, really wanted to make sure that type of thing never happened again, mm -hmm. you know? And so I became very, very possessive of the conlanging community and conlanging in general. Uh, and so then, you know, you sent an email that was super professional uh, and super self-assured. Uh, just saying, this is the thing that I'm doing. And I was wondering if you could help, you know, help me with that. And I was just like, how dare you? How dare you? Coming from out of nowhere with everything that we have built, how dare you? And, and you know, I just didn't know the context. I didn't yeah. know the context. And that's... Mm, and it's and it's hard to to sit you know when you're in a position like that to really sit down and say okay tell me tell me everything tell me all of the background so I can really understand why this is happening um, and you know if if I had done that maybe things would have gone differently but you know uh, I didn't and so I made a very bad impression and anyway but then you brought a whole host of students with you to LCC five anyway yes which was incredible. Uh, you brought a poster, you did a presentation. It was, it was, it was extraordinary. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a really cool thing. Anyway, so we, um, let me see if I can circle back to any of the topics that I was hoping to. Uh, <laughs> eh, eh. Well, actually we did kind of do that. That's cool. Um, hmm. How do you even approach that? Um, so, I, a little bit more background, uh, my, uh, my relationship with linguistics has always been a little, a, a little fraught, I guess, because um, at the beginning, uh, I never really took linguistics seriously. It was just something I did for fun because I knew that okay. my serious life's goal was, was to be a writer. Uh, was to be a t uh, an English teacher, an English professor, uh, either an English teacher or English professor, somewhere in there. Uh, literature was going to be my life. Uh, linguistics was something that fun, something fun that I did on the side. And of course, I started conlanging not afterwards, so it was 
it was both my professional fun and my my hobby fun, right. but um, nothing that was ever going to be serious. Uh, and so I, I rarely took any of the courses seriously, um, even though I enjoyed them. Uh, and then uh, there was, you know, some tension there in that I remember the first person that I ever told about two people. There were two people that I, I was I was tried to tell that I was creating my own language. Uh, the first was uh, a GSI that I had for cognitive science, Heather Rose Jones, whom who was kind of like a friend acquaintance now. Uh, she's a writer. She was a GSI at Berkeley, um, and I, I tried to tell her about you know this new project that I had, and she said. I have too many uh, of my own personal projects right now and too much going on professionally. So I just can't talk about anything new right now. It just completely shut me down, which, you know, I have to respect that. Fair uh, enough. It's, especially as somebody who's totally the opposite and will just say, oh yeah, whatever, you know, and then I, <laughs> and then I get too much and then, you know, I just end up letting things fall by the wayside. Yeah, I respect <laughs> that. Um, the second person I told was John McWhorter. Uh, you know, I was taking his Pitchens and Creoles class um and uh which was which was transformative in a number of ways by the way that was fall of 2001 and in okay. fact i had his class on september 11th i was kind oh, of wow. yeah it was kind of the end of that day for me but um uh i i told him you know that i you know was was creating my own language and he laughed at me and said have you been messing around with esperanto and it's like <laughs> First of all, I had taken an Esperanto course at Berkeley, but um, you know, uh, like those were those were my first interactions with anybody in the world of linguistics and language creation, and it was always an uphill battle the entire time. Um, mm-hmm. I, I actually convinced John McWhorter to let me run a a conlang experiment for his course, in lieu of doing a research paper because I hate doing research, uh, <laughs> and he and he allowed it. And that was nice. Um, it was great. I got an A minus on the paper. Like I, I did. I put a lot of work in. It. Like A minus. He's like, yeah. So yeah, you did good work, but you know, not perfect. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate can always that. can always go better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and um, let's see. After that, uh, I we you know was when I was the president of the of the undergraduate linguistics club, uh, we put together a symposium and I gave a talk on Conlangy. Uh, with, you know, a number of the department uh, people in attendance, where essentially the entire talk was kind of justifying it as something that could be useful to linguistics and relevant. And I didn't understand why it was getting so much pushback, you know, right. it did. And of course, by the way, later, uh, have you read that article with uh, about John Quijada's article in The New Yorker? Oh, yeah. The, yeah. the article on Ithquil? Yeah. 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 So, so you can see what, uh, you know, his, what George Lakoff's reaction was to him. Right. Uh, right. I got, got George Lakoff back at TEDx Berkeley. I, I put his quotes up on the screen. Destroyed him. Anyway, mm-hmm. he's not going to listen. Oh, look, he doesn't care. You ever met George Lakoff? No. He doesn't give a single shit what anybody thinks about anything. Anyway. So. <laughs> Nevertheless, brilliant guy. All right. So um, uh, anyway, uh, especially at Berkeley, I, I met with a lot of resistance in linguistics. And so it was always kind of an adversarial relationship, conlanging okay. and linguistics, where I felt like I was always 
trying to justify what it was that we did. And not just like say, you know, let us be, but also this is something that can be pedagogically useful to right. you. Um, and uh, it was just pushback at every step. Um, how do you feel about, you know, since you are a part of the academic linguistics community, how do you feel about that relationship, you know, linguistics and conlanging? Um, well, obviously very positively, um, <laughs> obviously. Um, no, I actually, I had never considered using it yeah, well, then again, I was still a new teacher anyway, because that spring semester of 2010, whenever I did that uh, morpheme exercise, again, only my second semester of actually teaching linguistics classes. So um, still new, but like, I don't think the idea would have come to me on my own necessarily to even think about bringing this thing I do for fun um, into the classroom. Um, maybe eventually it would have, but it wouldn't have happened right then. Um, on top of that, I already knew the connection anyway, because when I had decided to create the language, um, my first language in 2008, um, I, I was hesitant before that because I had the story idea and I was going with it. Um, and it wasn't until like one day I was like, okay, I'm gonna need a language for this. And I stopped and I'm like, who better to create a language than somebody who does nothing but study language? Like it just suddenly like, of course, like I have the training I have you know, what I need to do to actually make this real because, you know, I was remembering my failed childhood experiment of yeah. what was not a language. Um, and so that became really thrilling for me. So like, I already knew that like, you really do need some knowledge of linguistics, uh, even if it's informal, whatever, however you get the knowledge, you have to be aware of linguistics to be able to do a good job creating a language. Um, and so that connection was there, but again, it wasn't the the classroom connection wasn't there until I had done that exercise in the classroom. Um, and like immediately I saw the students really came to life on that more so than any other data sets because they got to create something, they got to have fun with it. They were learning so much from it um, that that's really like, it, it just became clear to me that quite frankly, and this is something I said in the 2013 LCC5, if you go back and find my, my video, it's out there on YouTube somewhere. Um, my main point was this is quite frankly the best way to teach linguistics because you see right away if students are understanding something um, because when they have to actually not only create the pattern, which is honestly the easier part, right? To say like, oh, this, this prefix is gonna do this thing, fine. Like that could be a five minute thing. But then to actually apply that and apply it consistently, that requires so much attentiveness and ability to really think through language and what it's doing. And so, I mean, my argument is that every program should have a conlang course. That's my argument. Um, and I believe so firmly in it that um, when we, so this year, um, I don't know that everybody knows this, but I know David knows this, but this year um, we, we actually created a linguistics major um, and it's approved, it's live. We actually have majors right now. So very exciting wow. first year on the books. Um, but when we created that, the capstone course for our majors is the invented languages class. And so every single major will have to take it to get the degree. Um, and that's how strongly I feel about it because it just, to me, it really shows that 
that ability to understand aspects of typology, to understand what patterns actually show up in natural languages, try to mimic that to the best of your ability and to apply it like that. I can't say that enough. Like how else are you going to apply it outside of learning a language and showing your demonstration of, look, I know how to use this, this thing because I learned the language and can speak it now. Um, outside of that, like it's really hard in a linguistics classroom to fully demonstrate that understanding. And um, I, I also think it's just, it's so much fun for students that I, basically this class is probably one of the only classes I teach where I give no minimums um, or maximums really. I just say, write your paper and you need to have these things in it. And the last time I offered it, so in 2019, when I collected papers at the end of the semester, again, nothing about like how many pages it needs. It's just, here's like your checklist of the things that you need to have in it. The average length, single spaced of the final paper I received from undergraduate students <laughs> was 19 pages. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And so like that's, you. On Instagram, people <laughs> saw, like I posted these giant stacks of like conlang grammars. It's like literally giant stacks because the students are so excited that I say create 10 words, they give me 30 because they're like, oh, I spent all weekend on this. Um, and so like, I never have to ask them to do work really. It's the students are, are legitimately excited to be diving into their work and get lost in the work. And it's like, it's the best part of both worlds because you're learning something, you're doing something um, very real, but at the same time, you're being super creative and getting to just invent things. And like that to me is an amazing combination. And I, again, I will say it again, seven years later, I think every program needs a conline course, every linguistics program anyway. So that's, that's how I view the relationship. We need to make this podcast more famous. <laughs> <laughs> maybe 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 we can just kind of email this episode to other linguistics departments <laughs> <laughs> specifically the ones of the names you've mentioned <laughs> no i mean come on they they have uh they have they they actually do have linguistics department. i'm sorry conlang courses so that that's that's the good thing in the pet in the conlang okay. pedagogy the only contributors are ones that actually taught conlang courses um which is which is why they were invited to contribute and so that was that was why i said doug ball jesse Sands, where are you and right, anyway right. it's okay it's okay anyway but um yeah and that's uh and that was the thing especially back then um especially years and years ago especially when you first emailed the thing when i started hearing about conlang courses I was so upset because these were by and large courses taught by people who were not conlangers. Right. Um, and who I could tell took a rather clinical approach to this whole thing and saw mm -hmm. this is, you know, an interesting, this is an interesting outcome if we do this for these students. Uh, they really need, what I really wanted though was some sort of professor like you because that's the type of professor that needs to be teaching these courses uh, and and not only that uh, especially like at a, at, a, at a school like SFA that gets a lot more you know students from within the immediate community you know right that's how 
that's how you get people to know about conlanging. Like, mm-hmm. probably not producing a lot of lifelong future conlangers, though hopefully some. Uh, but of course, that's the way it is with any course that you teach on right. anything, right? Right. Um, but it's suddenly it's just it's a it's a very positive interaction, uh, mm-hmm. and they know a lot more, loads more than most other people, and they can share right. it. Um, and that's that's how that's how things get bigger. That's how things spread. Yeah, that was yeah. So your course is just probably exactly what I would have hoped for. Uh, I just didn't know that at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have the context. It's okay. Nope. Yeah. You only have bad experiences. Yep. Okay. So, um, gosh, I see that we're approaching the hour. We started a, we started a little late, right? We did. Um, if I, I think we have like five to seven minutes left to actually hit the hour, if I'm remembering correctly. Quick question. Does the little timer up in the corner, does that tell you how long it's been recording or how long the Zoom has been going? Um, timer in the corner. I don't have a timer in the corner. Seriously? Uh, corner no. of the screen? Uh, upper right-hand side? Nope. Really? Huh. Really? Maybe it's because I'm the host and it's just doesn't care if I know. Maybe, but but here, I'll... I'll I'll, I'll, I'll show you. I'll, I'll even circle it there. I'll send it to you. I'm like, I'm looking all around, like (laughs) where else should I be looking? Yeah, that's okay. Well, anyway, it says uh, an hour and uh, it's about to say an hour and nine minutes. So I I didn't know if that's how long the recording had been going or how long the Zoom had been going. It's probably No, that would be how long the Zoom, because yeah, we were, we were chatting a while before we actually. Got it. Okay. There, there are a number of there are a number of topics that you brought up that I think could be explored further. It would be fun to do that at a later time if it makes sense. Um, But in case it doesn't come up, uh, something that I have found truly incredible. So like, um, you know, I've been to uh, the Wellesley course, which Mm -hmm. you may have heard about, right? Yeah, uh, with that Angela, Angela Carpenter. That Angela Carpenter teaches, uh, which uh, which is, of course, an all-female course. It's Wellesley is still um, an all-girls school. But uh, something that did strike me, though, uh, visiting your classes over the years, was that uh, they were overwhelmingly female. Um, yeah. And the, one of the biggest problems within the Conlingan community is that starting from the very beginning, it was overwhelmingly male. Um, right. Uh, both online and then once we started to get it, once we started getting together in person, um, and and I, I I have some theories as to why it started that way, uh, but of course there's no reason for it to be that way, and there's no excuse for it being that way now, um, and that was that was something that I've been struggling with that I feel like. I cannot possibly, I, I mean, I can help, but I can't like do anything directly about it because, right. you, know, you know what I mean? Um, and so whatever it is about your course that attracts female students, it would be nice to know so that like. Okay, but, yeah, but, but you got to back up and think about my larger student population. Okay. Because 
if you recall, you also visited all my other classrooms and maybe yes. you weren't so aware, but did you notice that almost every single class I teach is overwhelmingly female? I, I didn't notice that, but you know, reviewing, I think I could notice that. Yeah, so, yeah, um, like there, that. Yeah. yeah, there are times where I'll have, you know, 20 students and not a single male student or like one. Um, and part of that is the program within which we're situated. Um, part of that is the SFA campus itself. We have, um, I forget the exact percentages and they, they kind of vary, but it's usually around 60 to 65% female students. Mm. Um, and a lot of the male students um, are in forestry and biology and whatnot. Mm. Um, and so you do definitely see that divide, the classic gender divide um, that academia has been for a long time struggling to, to combat. Um, and so I am starting to see a lot more male students in my classes um, as I'm getting more from outside of the programs where I teach. And honestly, to me, that's my student diversity. I get more excited by looking at the list of majors in my class than thinking about, cause I'm like, yeah, it's SFA. I'm gonna have, you know, probably more female than male students. Um, but the fact that so many now are from majors all over campus. Um, and I'm getting like, you know, computer science. I've got somebody from biology coming in, somebody from art, somebody from history. Like I've got mm. all these students coming from all over um, to take it. And so that to me is like, that's targeting into something even more exciting because they're gonna go back to their academic communities, which are so different from any language courses or anything like that with, you know, more information about conlanging. And so, I find that really exciting, um, but yeah, it's not, so I don't know that I can address that because it's not, it's also hard to address because a female professor is more likely to get female students, I believe in general, I could be wrong yeah. about that, um, but based on sort of followings of, you know, people who feel more comfortable doing a lot more work with me, um, it tends to be, again, that sort of gender divide. So um, it's just unfortunate, it really is unfortunate, but that also means that I can't really say that there's something true magical okay. that I do to draw them in. I will say that I do work extra hard um, with the female students that I have in the online courses to try to get them to share their work more freely um, to get them into the community. So not that yeah. I don't try to convince my male students to do the same, but I, no, I know that I, I'm very aware of um, a lot of students not wanting or being confident enough to share their work, so. Yeah, and by the way, anytime, anytime they want to give me something for Fiat Lingua, I'll take it. <laughs> I know you will. Yeah. <laughs> I have begged, I have seriously begged two students so many times to be like, just send it. That's all you got to do, just send it. Um, but, you know, I'm working yeah. on it and I have a plan for, for how to, change that next semester. I'll tell you about it later. Ooh, cool. All right. Exciting. Okay. Yeah. Um, of course, the, the, the reason I brought that up is because I, I would love to see more, I'd love to see a more diverse space in the online conlanging world. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's hard. Uh, it, it's hard because if you, if you have a forum where everybody can just share a certain type of personality is going to be more comfortable sharing. Yes. And the more they do that, the harder it becomes for others with a different personality type to share. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, 
the same problem with Facebook and the reason why it's destroyed America. But anyway. <laughs> and why I quit. <laughs> because, see, that's what certain personalities do. They just say, this is too much. Goodbye. Yep. And, and the day that this so... podcast airs, by the way, me too. So, good. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Well, you will have started the process. It's still a like 30 day process where they actually delete it and they keep sending you things like, are you sure? Are you sure you want to delete it? <laughs> it's still there for like 30 days. So that way, if you come back, it reactivates it immediately. So just be aware of that. Great. Uh, all right. Well, um, anyway, uh, we didn't, we didn't like hit on everything, but we, we hit on a lot of things. So, but, uh, I was I was just really glad to hear even more about 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 your course and and its history because it really is something special and truly unique not just within conlanging but within specifically within conlanging pedagogy uh, it's it's really tremendous work you've done um, and so I think it's great to hear more. Thank you. Um, okay, so then. Do you usually sign off? <laughs> usually what I say at this point is, do you have any final words, David? Oh. Right. <laughs> and usually you have a reaction like that or something along the lines of, oh, I meant to prepare something for this one, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. and, and then I take back over. So that's usually right. how it goes. Is that, okay. is that the status quo? Is that today too? Yeah, I think that's pretty much today as well. Excellent. Well, then in that case, thank you for listening, everyone who uh, made it through this hour with us. And we are happy to have you as our patrons. And for eventually, when, it's, when this is to the wider world, happy to have you as a listener. Um, and stay grammar. And we look forward to talking to you next month. Although David is doing this to me, does that mean you do have something? I just wanted to say uh, welcome to our, our new patron, Curtis Fry. It's, 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 good to, yeah. it's good to have you on board. Yay, welcome Curtis Fry. Um, okay, so, and with that, everybody stay grammar and we'll catch you next month.